Thank you, Margaret, uh, for stepping in and uh, on short notice reading what uh, we, we obscure a little bit, but is in fact an entire chapter out of the book of Esther. Uh, this is the trouble with the Old Testament, is that to get these stories, even just a good chunk of a longer story, you need these massive lengths of Scripture. But the stories are so good and the meaning is so rich, so I appreciate all of you entering into these long readings, entering into these stories with us. Let us enter now into the sermon, the word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. When we're raised on stories from Scripture of divine encounters... What do we do with the stories from Scripture where God doesn't make an appearance? Should we start treating them like the Bible's version of where's Waldo and start searching for the Almighty hidden among crowded streets or hiding behind bushes? Or should we take up our pencils and start developing the narrative in the margins, working God back into the story? And when we're shaped by a faith rich with miraculous moments... What do we do with the stretches in our lives when God doesn't seem to make an appearance? Because we know the stories about how God saved Noah from the flood, how God visited Abraham with a generous promise, how God delivered Joseph from imprisonment, parted the Red Sea for the Israelites, led the Israelites to the promised land, how God healed the leper and declared hope for a better day through the prophets. We know these great, miraculous, biblical stories, and yet sometimes we wake up in the morning and it's just a plain old Sunday morning with no fantastic qualities about it. Another day awake in this world, in this country, a country with more guns than people, where mass shootings are so commonplace that elementary school children practice lockdown drills, where the value of LGBTQ plus lives are routinely dismissed or belittled, where the plague of racial inequality drags on, where the shackles of debt hold so many in poverty and greed further establishes economic inequality, where some are sick but don't have the insurance to get well, while others are sick with illnesses that cannot be healed, a world and a place where death lingers and grief endures, and yet we still have to remember to put out the trash once a week and go to the dentist twice a year. Sometimes it's just one more day awake in this world, awash with difficulty and all sorts of mundane things and absolutely lacking in any appearance from the Almighty. So what do we do? Do we do nothing, just scan the faces in the football crowds looking for the Almighty or do we start to write a different story in the margins? In late 1946, a group of shepherds moving through the desert about a mile north of the Dead Sea in a place called Qumran tossed a few stones into a cave, and they heard some pottery break in there. And so they went into the cave, and amid the pieces of broken pottery, they found seven ancient scrolls, centuries old, the first part of what would turn out to be one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in all of modern history. And the archaeologists came then to Qumran and discovered evidence of a massive ancient community that had lived there. 
There was evidence of a sophisticated water system, a cemetery with a thousand graves. There were fragments of coins and pottery and rope and baskets and more. And then there were the scrolls. The archaeologists found tens of thousands of fragments of scrolls in 11 caves along a two-mile stretch. Evidence of a community that held the written word close to their hearts and their daily lives. And among those many scrolls were manuscripts from every single book of the Jewish Bible. Every book except for one. Esther was nowhere to be found. Esther has long bewildered Jewish and Christian interpreters alike for centuries. It stands alone among the biblical canon for several reasons, but most particularly that God never makes an appearance in it. From start to finish, the book of Esther never even mentions God, let alone the Torah or Jerusalem or even the temple. And so this may well be why this ancient community of Qumran left the book out of their library entirely. And some have suggested that this apparent absence of God makes the book completely secular. But I'm not sure that this understanding doesn't completely miss the story that Esther is telling. When the Hebrew Scriptures were later translated into the Greek to be circulated alongside the Christian books of the Bible, scribes interspersed 107 new verses into the book of Esther in what the King James Version would plainly call the additions to the book of Esther. These added verses pushed an overtly religious veneer into the story, forcing God to be an active participant in the proceedings. And I can understand the desire that a book of the Bible should be about God. And yet I know also how belittling and demeaning it can be to retell someone else's story while trying to insert God in the mix. I'm not even sure that it was necessary to do, because I'm not even sure that we're not just overlooking the way that God, who is never mentioned, is still present in the story in the first place. When we come to Esther, doom is lingering over the heads of the Jewish people, and Mordecai is grieving loudly and publicly. He has spent days in front of the gates of the capital city, tear-streaked and ash-stricken. And when Esther hears what a scene he is making, she sends him an outfit of new everyday clothes to wear instead. I suspect that Esther knew how dangerous things were and wanted to keep the both of them safe. No one knew she was a Jew, But they knew that she and Mordecai were close somehow. And so if only she could stay quiet and he could just blend into the background for once, well, they might not be able to avert the tragedy for everybody, but the two of them on their own might escape. It's the sort of brutal practicality that no one ever wants to be, but situations sometimes require. But Mordecai rejects the clothes And he tells Esther about what's going on in this back and forth with a messenger. And she immediately recognizes where his head is at and reminds him that not just anybody can scroll into the king's court and demand an audience. Because if anyone goes to see the king without being called for, even if the queen goes to see the king without being called for, the punishment is immediate death. And so Esther has nothing going for her can almost imagine her saying, who, me? I have no power, no authority. 
I am an orphan, a closeted minority, faking my way in a place where I know I don't belong. Isn't there someone else that can step up and save my people? Couldn't someone with a strong prophetic calling be the one to speak up? Couldn't a priest come through for us? And to this, Mordecai has a curious response. Rescue will surely come by someone from somewhere, he says. He has faith in this. But if it's not from Esther, he doesn't seem all too sure about how long it will take and what will happen to her and them in the meantime. Who knows, he says, maybe it was for such a time as this, as you came to be in this place. Where is God? Mordecai has faith that someone will come to save them. And so they could start looking for God all over, looking for God's chosen advocate, someone with a calm assurance of the role they have to play in some divine plan. Oh, they could go from door to door, peer deep into the faces and the souls of their friends and neighbors in a search for someone that God had sent for some place where they could see God was present and at work. They could look around for God to show up somewhere. Or Esther could step up with fear and with courage to let God work through her. And so Esther fasts, and Esther prays, and Esther saves her people. Her story would be told for centuries. And so it is not unlikely that there was once a young girl named Mary who learned the story of Esther, who stepped up in a time when God was nowhere to be seen except in the sending of one poor small, outnumbered girl. And so it might have been that one day when Mary was approached by an angel talking about great things that would happen through her, the birth of a child, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, and looked at Mary, she might have first thought about how little she had to offer, a single, unwed mother, betrothed to be married, sure, but not married yet, a peasant in a small town, in a small place, in a world with so many problems where God didn't seem to be very present at all. But it's possible that she remembered the story of Esther, who is so much like herself. She might have remembered how Esther could have gone and looked for someone else, but instead stepped up to do what was asked of her to be God in the story, the hands and feet of God at work in the world. And so Mary said, let it be with me as you have spoken. And Mary would bring God into a world where God had seemed to be absent for so long, would give birth to the very body of God present in this world in a tradition that had begun long before her, with Esther and before. A tradition that she continued and passed down into the church, so that it continues to be our task and our job to say, you may not think you have 
whatever someone else told you it takes. You may not think you have the power or the role or the authority. You may not have the strength or the words or the courage or the bravery. But God has to show up from somewhere. God has to be born by someone, delivered into this world by someone. And God will come from someone, somewhere. But couldn't it be us? Couldn't it be any one of us? It's a long tradition that the Methodist church has continued as well. And there are so many that we could have pulled to name and to list to describe their stories. There's one whose story I love. Her name is Mary McLeod Bethune. She grew up the child of slaves in the mid-1800s, a young black woman who had little to offer in a world that dismissed and demeaned her, and yet excelled in studies, found a way to get an education. And when her children had nowhere to be taught, nowhere to go to school, she started a school of her own with a dollar and 50 cents in her pocket and a whole lot of faith. That school grew from six or seven the first year to 30 the next to hundreds in the years after. And when it grew and they added teachers, when they began to notice that there was no hospitals for their children to go to. There were no hospitals that would treat the young black children at that time. And so Mary started a hospital that treated the black residents of her area. And it grew and then when the government passed the resolution that allowed black men and women in this country to vote, she began walking men and women to the polls to enroll and to vote. One day she heard that the KKK had gotten wind of the work she had been doing and would come that night to burn down her school as a show of their displeasure for her work. The story is told in several ways. It would seem that the KKK did amass some amount of people to march down the streets and they turned off all of the lights in all of the other houses and businesses. But Mary took her school, turned off all the lights on the inside and all the floodlights uh, she turned on on the outside. And then she stood out the front door. Some say she stood on her own, crossed her arms and just watched as they walked by. Others say that she brought out some of the groundskeepers and some of her students, and they sang spirituals, songs of faith. The KKK didn't do anything that day or any of the other days to follow, and Mary would lead hundreds in that week down to the polls to be registered to vote. Esther was a girl who had so little in an impossible situation that was likely going to end in death for her. But who else was there? It could have been that she was there in such a time, in such a place, for a purpose. And Mary, a young girl in the city of Bethlehem, had so little to offer, and yet it turned out that she was there in that time, in that place, for a purpose. And Mary McLeod Bethune, in her time and her place, was there for a purpose. And so it might be that any of us, with whatever little we have to offer, might be here in this time and in this place 
for a purpose. And it might be dangerous and it might near well kill us. And yet it might be worth it. Because in a story where God does not seem to be present, we can spend our time looking in the background for anyone else who might bring God in. Or we might become the hands and feet of Christ. We ourselves might birth Christ into this world. Who knows, Mordecai wondered to Esther, but loud enough for all of us to hear. Maybe it was for such a time as this that you came to be in this place. Maybe. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand as you are able as we continue in worship with our next hymn. The hymn is called Tell Out My Soul. Um, As you're standing and finding either the hymnal or looking towards the screen, I'm glad to share with you that the words we're hearing are actually the words that Mary, uh, the Mary who birthed God, um, sang in one of uh, in the in the Gospel of Luke in response to hearing that she would give birth to the Christ Child. And so it is our joy to sing these words aloud as well. Let us sing together. <laughs> 